Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Nigel Lithgow, and I was the executive producer of Pop Stars, My Idol, Pop Idol, and American Idol. And these are my Idol memories. Welcome to this week's Idol memories. Now, one of the toughest positions to have held on American Idol was that of music supervisor. All of the music on the show had to be cleared with the writers, the publishers, and the artists. On top of that, as we chose the themes for each week, the music supervisor had to put together a huge list of songs from that particular decade and then introduce them to the contestants and, of course, help them choose what the contestants would be singing that week. Our wonderful music supervisor for season one was Susan Slamer, and I'm absolutely thrilled I can get to talk to her today. Susan, welcome. Hi, Nige. Now, you were our music supervisor for the first four seasons of Idol. Now, any TV show with music would have someone supervising that music, but could you explain for our listeners what your responsibilities were? Well, initially, when I was first hired, it was to come up with the music budget for all the music we would be using. And I remember uh, being given the first season of Pop Idol to watch um, so that I could get an idea of what you guys were trying to accomplish here in America. Right. I fell in love with Pop Idol. I thought it was fantastic and I was super excited, (laughs) but there was a lot of music. So my job was to clear all of the music that the contestants may sing and would sing, as well as making sure that we stayed on budget for our music. So that was what I first did. Right. Well, you know, when we first came to America from the UK to produce that first season, I was surprised that the rules for using music here were totally different from the UK where we had blanket agreements with the unions. Can, can you explain the difference? In the UK, um, as I understand it, when uh, any, any show that was on a BBC or government-run channel, all you had to do was, uh, it was a blanket agreement, as you said, and I think at the time it was something like 30 pounds for 30 seconds. Unfortunately, you come to America and we don't have that kind of agreement. The only time you can use music for free in this country is if it's a educational program like a PBS or a news program. But any other music being used for any other use, you must clear and pay for it as you use it. Yeah. I sat down with you and we had a conversation and I explained it all to you. You kind of was, oh, okay, you didn't like it. <laughs> but <laughs> You were pretty upset about it. Um, I won't say what you said to me, but um, you you didn't like that fact, but you understood it. And from there on, you got it and we we went on our merry way. Sure. I mean, it it made no sense to me that the companies in this country hadn't organized it better for themselves with the record companies. Uh, Because (laughs) you're, you're absolutely right saying the BBC had that blanket agreement, but also so did the independent television have that blanket agreement, which is where we actually made pop idol. So it it worked for both. But 
here, I found that you had to ask the publisher, the, um, the writer, the actual band themselves, uh, and you had to ask each individual. Uh, and if any one of them said no, we couldn't get the music cleared. Yeah, when I first started um, putting music to TV, artists loved being in film, but TV, they were a little more skeptical about. So in the beginning, when I first started years and years ago, um, I had to go back if it was excessively violent, if there was any sex in the scenes, drugs. A lot of bands had written into their contracts with both their publishers and the labels that they had approval rights um, and they could approve or disprove. When I worked for one of the record labels, I would talk to the managers of some of these bands and say, okay, well, what types of things do they not want to be involved in? But in each record company agreement and each publishing agreement, most artists do have the right and most songwriters do have the right to approve the way their music is used in TV and film. How did you describe, because obviously we'd never made American Idol here before, <laughs> when you were talking to uh, the publishers and the, and the managers and the, you know, the bands, whatever, how did you explain American Idol? Did you say, oh, it's this... A new English program, and they've got this horrible English guy who's going to be really rude to the singers. What, what did you well, actually say to get the deals done? You know, that's really funny because after I had watched Pop Idol, I was absolutely over the moon to be involved in American Idol. I absolutely loved the show. I, I loved everything about it, including Simon. And, um, and I remember asking the head of Fremantle at the time, Cecile Frocata, if we were bringing it to America and were we keeping the format the same and were you bringing Simon over? And she said, why? And I said, because I love it. I love it. I love the show. And um, you need Simon. And she said, really? And I said, oh, my God, yeah, he, you need Simon Cow. I said, but when you bring him over, add extra security because he's going to get his ass kicked. Um, <laughs> the English people were so polite. You know, when, when Simon would tell them they were awful and the worst singer he's ever heard, they were so polite. And I thought, in America, they're just going to go, F you, pal. You know, what do you know kind of a thing. But the way I described it to the public, was this is a brand new show it's never been done before and these kids are going to be singing you're going to have all these young contestants singing songs that we all know and love now the problem is there are going to be a lot of singers who cannot sing they literally are terrible singers well they're going to be deliberately trashing our our songs and i said no that's the that's the beauty behind this these kids really believe they can sing. They think they're great. So they're not deliberately trashing your song, but they will be singing it badly. Um, but it's not intentional. And um, it took a while to get people on board, but I had a good friend, and I think you spoke to her several times, um, from EMI, who we'd known each other for years, and I was so in love with this show. She believed me. She said, you know, Sue, you're so passionate about this. I think you really do think this is going to be a great show. You think it's a great show. So we're going to come on board. And once I had Allison on board I, and I spoke to all the other publishers, they all came on board. And quite honestly, they once they saw the show, everyone fell in love with it. So Yeah, I've got to say Allison saved our bacon in those early days uh, with coming on board for EMI because she led yes. the way. She really led the way. She really did. Yeah. And um, she, you know, she was a big fan of the show as well. And just and I'm still friends with her today. And I always give her props for saying, you know, you were the first 
person to believe in me and believe in the show. And you came on board and everything else seemed to fall into place once she did. Sure. Well, I remember that when we got here, you had already cleared a whole library of songs. But but I was totally shocked at the lack of musical history that the contestants knew. They had no knowledge of the wonderful American songbook, if you like. That's right. Um, it was surprising. Um, I grew up with parents and grandparents who loved music and who always had music playing. Uh, my mother introduced me to, you know, the platters and the four tops, all the Motown acts, Frank Sinatra and the Rack Pack. My grandfather on my mother's side was a big barbershop quartet guy. So I, that's how I found out about the Osmond brothers. My grandmother on my dad's side, um, um, my father was Hawaiian. I'm Hawaiian, part Hawaiian. And my grandmother would always play ukulele and sing me Hawaiian love songs. So <laughs> I'm so pleased Simon didn't hear her doing that. <laughs> <laughs> he would have loved her. <laughs> I'll bet he would have. <laughs> it was surprising that a lot of these kids they were karaoke singers in many ways. They'd gone into karaoke bars and they would sing songs they knew. Um, a few of them had some very good history, but not a lot, and which prompted me to ensure that they learned. I, I felt like an educator at times. Sure. Um, well, you know very well that, you know, with coming from the UK, we only had one sort of top 10, top 20 where here you break it down into all different genres from gospel to country to R&B to soul to pop. And we have, you know, the Rolling Stones next to um, Andy Williams, next to <laughs> Hugo Montenegro and the music of the mountains. Uh, and, and that's all within our top 10. Everything is mixed in. So we get to hear yeah. everything in Britain. So when we came here, we were totally shocked. And I think on the first time we talked about Motown, kids had never heard of Motown. And I was yeah. like, what? And, and, you know, I'm a huge, huge fan of songwriters. And you in America here have the greatest songwriters in the world. Yeah. Uh, and these kids didn't know them and didn't know their songs. So I, I like you, felt at the same time as we were entertaining America, uh, both Ken and I felt like we were giving a music education, not just to the kids, but to America in general, by using the songs and, you know, to try and help you as well. We broke it down into genres. So we'd do a Motown week, a 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and use the time periods. I remember you would go round to the house where all the kids were and play them the music of the following week. And they had to listen to it and decide what they wanted to sing. Yeah, I, I work seven days a week. Um, I spent all day Saturday burning CDs for the kids, right. pulling up lyrics for the kids. It was wonderful, Nige. I, I loved doing it. I would go over every Sunday night. They'd come back from their Ford shoot. We'd all have dinner together, and then we'd sit in whatever living room the mansion had sure, for sure, us. Sure. I would play them every Motown song. But not only would I play them the original artist, I would play them all the cover versions yep. so that because we had country singers, we had R&B singers, we had pop rock singers. So I wanted the kids to be able to hear every version of every song that, that was in that category for that week. And sometimes it took two hours, sometimes it took four hours. And at the end of the night after, and I would say to them, okay, guys, we're going to, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to play a song for you. I'm going to play verse, bridge, chorus. I'm going to stop. 
if any of you think that's a song you might want to sing next week, we'll carry on and listen to the whole song. If no one seems to like that song, we'll move on. And that's what we did every week. And we would get up sometimes and we'd be singing. I'd be singing along with him and we'd be dancing to whatever dance might have gone with the song. It was so much fun. But what R.J. Helton said to me one night, which was really beautiful, he said, you know, Susan, this is my favorite time of the week because you give us music. Every week I'd give them, I'd leave them with not only the lyric sheets, but the CDs of every song we had played. And RJ loved it. The other thing I did, Nige, because they didn't have a music history, if we had a special mentor on, like a Burt Bacharach, Barry Manilow, Gloria Estefan, I would give them an education on who these people were and give them bios so that when they met these legends, they would have a respect and a knowledge rather than going in blind and not knowing who they were meeting. I mean, when you think, you know, I'm a huge fan of songwriters. My my best friend, as you probably know, is John Farrow, who wrote all of Olivia Newton-John's hits. Right. Uh, And and we were working with Gamble and Huff from the Philly Sound, Lamont Dozier and Smokey Robinson from Motown, Barry Manilow, as you said, Barry Gibb, Lieber and Stoller, Burt Bacharach, and of course, uh, our dear friend, Diane Warren. These were the greatest songwriters of the time. And they were coming right. in and talking to these kids. And, and you, thank, oh. thank you very much, were letting them know who they were actually meeting. But I remember sitting in that house a couple of times while you were doing it and just seeing the empty faces looking at you. <laughs> it's going, what the hell have we got to sing this week? We were hoping they wouldn't just take the arrangement that they were listening to there, but turning it around for themselves. But most of the time, they almost did a, an exact copy of it. Which was well, yeah, because they didn't have a music background. Some of them didn't even play an instrument. I remember one kid had never sung with a band before or never performed with a piano player, right. and he 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 just did karaoke. So when when the pianist started the song, the kid was lost. He didn't know where to come in. He didn't know how to come in. And I remember saying to the piano player, "Do me a favor." Let this kid start to sing the song, and then can you come in while he's singing? Gradually, <laughs> you know, I couldn't think of any other way for this kid to figure out where he was supposed to come in. I can and see that. To come in, I can you know? see. <laughs> Let him start singing, and then you join in in whatever key he starts singing in. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which themes uh, worked best in that first season for you in terms of music, and, and which ones didn't? To be honest with you, I was looking at all the theme shows we did. I think every theme show was brilliant. It's not the songs in the theme shows that don't work. It's the kids picking songs because they don't know what suits their voice the best. Do you know what I mean? Like, there are all these great songs. Let's face it. Is there a bad song in the Motown catalog? I don't think so. But if a kid picks a song that he doesn't have the range for or the power or it's in a weird key and he doesn't know what key he sings in, then that pulls the performance down. You know what I mean? So that's where I think when kids don't know who they are as an artist or as a singer, even, even basic music, they don't really understand that that song really doesn't work for the tone of your voice. Or separately, you have a great tone, but you don't know how to pick songs that show that off. Like if you have a little bit of a rough edge and you don't know what songs to pick that show that to its brilliance or the richness of your of your lower register, and you're picking a song that's in a mid-register row, and really, you've got this lovely, deep voice. So I think it's not the songs that let the kids down, it's the song choice. Does right, that make right. sense? Sure, and 
And we always said we must let them choose whatever song they, they want to sing. Oh, yeah. We, we, oh, yeah. we can advise, and certainly Bird, Ken, and myself always said, look at this, try that, as you did. Uh-huh. Uh, but we could yeah. never turn around and say, don't sing that, you know? Bird and I would be looking at each other when they were working on arrangements. And Bird, because he couldn't tell the kids, that's not really a good song. You couldn't be negative. You couldn't. Yeah, yeah. But Bird would always go, what else you got? Yes, that's right. <laughs> yes, yes. I know that uh, Mike Darnell, uh, the network executive, wasn't happy at all with the big band show because I think the uh, ratings dropped off that week and they blamed the theme for that, which I never understood because we never advertised what theme we were going to be doing. So the no, public right. didn't know we were doing a big band show until we did it. But I heard... Yeah that you had a very interesting interaction with Kelly Clarkson about her song choice on that Big Bang show. Tell me about it. Well, there were a couple of things. When I said we were going to be big doing Big Band Week, eight of the probably top 10 contestants face fell, except for Justin Guarini and Kelly Clarkson. Kelly said, I want to do a song, Susan, called Stuff Like That There. And I said, some the film for the boys, Bette Midler. And she's like, yes. I said, oh, my God, Kelly, I love that song. I love that song. And Justin chose Route 66. Both of them right away knew what they wanted to sing. Well, on the night of the show, Kelly, I get, get called over the headphones. Susan, Kelly needs you backstage pronto. So I go running backstage and I go, my God, what's up? What's up? She had forgotten all the lyrics. No. She, had, she couldn't remember them at all. And I didn't have time to run upstairs to my office to grab them. So we were backstage singing the song together, trying to figure out how it went and what the lyrics were. She was panicked. And then we got laughing because it was like so ridiculous. She got through it. But, you know, not too many people like me who don't sing can say that they sang with Kelly Clarkson, but I did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's great that you knew the song, too. You know what? I love that movie for the boys. I love Bette Midler and stuff like that there is such a great part of that film. And I always love that song. So the minute Kelly said that, I was like, oh, yeah, I know that song. That's that's perfect for you. The other thing that happened that night, I don't know if you know, but Justin Guarini, he forgot the words on stage, but he's so brilliant. He was making stuff up. I said, Justin, what, what was going on in your head? He said, Susan, I was just trying while I was singing to figure out states that rhymed with each other and cities that rhymed with each other. <laughs> Why well, got laughing? Well, the next day, I had a guy call me that was writing a book about Route 66. And he said, you know, uh, Justin sang different lyrics last night. Um, does he know something we don't know? And I said, no, he forgot the lyrics and he was just trying to get through the song. You know what? I didn't notice that at all. Yeah, it's funny. It's would, funny. Would we would we ever get into trouble with the music publishers for those sort of mistakes? No. The, if you're performing live like our kids were, and you screw up a lyric, it's not intentional. You're not changing the lyric because you want to change the lyric. You just forgot them. You just bust on. So they don't mind stuff like that. But if somebody wanted to do a lyric change for whatever reason, then yes. I would have to go to the music sure, publisher sure. and and give them the lyric change that we wanted to do and explain why we would want to change the lyric. Well, as I say, the executives were a little unhappy with it only because the ratings dropped, not because of the music or the performances, because I think everyone did really well on the show. Yeah, I think so too. I think I've mentioned this to you before, but I've got to say it again, because whether you're working at home or working on your fitness, 
and you want to be listening to what you're listening to and not to what someone else is listening to, then you need a great pair of wireless earbuds. But before you drop hundreds of dollars on a pair, check out wireless earbuds from Raycon. You already know Raycon earbuds start at about half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds on the market. Their newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are fantastic. With six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, which is what I love, and more compact design that gives you a nice, noise-isolating fit. Raycon's wireless earbuds are so comfortable, I sometimes fall asleep while I'm listening to something when I've gone to bed. They're perfect for conference calls or binging podcasts. Raycon earbuds are both stylish and discreet, with no dangling wires or stems to distract anyone during video calls. Now is the time to get the latest and the greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash idle. That's buyraycon.com slash idle for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash idle. Now, your office phone rang one day and the voice on the other end of it said, Hello, this is Neil Sadaka. What was your reaction to that? I didn't believe it was him. His voice reminded me of a guy in Southern California who was always calling, always bothering me about one thing or another. And so when he said, this is Neil Sadaka, I was actually unfriendly. I was rude. <laughs> and I was like, I, I was like, yeah, right. What do you want? You know? <laughs> and then he, he, he started talking. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of the show and I'd, I'd really love to know what it would take to be a mentor. And I, and I stopped. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said, is this really Neil Sadaka? And he burst out laughing. And I said, oh, my God, sir, I am so sorry. I'm, I didn't believe it was you. And I'm so sorry I was rude. He was the most charming, lovely man. Sure. He, he started laughing. He said, I understand you must get a lot of calls. But it was brilliant. He, it was funny because he was doing a lot of interviews after he did Idol. And never once did he tell a reviewer that I was rude to him. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember? Do you remember when... I asked Paul Anker to be on the show and rewrite my way for, uh -huh. and then we ran out of time and I asked you. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. I, I asked you to call Paul Anker and say, I'm sorry, we can't use you on the show. And I'm laughing because I know what's coming. What did he, what, what did he say to you? Basically, he, I, when I called him, he said, I've just spent, three months in France, writing these lyrics, writing all the rewrites. He said, Susan, I want someone with bigger balls than you to call me and tell me this. And I said, oh, okay, Paul, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you. And I hung up and like a little kid, I came running into your office, night. <laughs> I just got off the phone with Paul Anka and I told you what he said. And you said, oh, my God, get Ken, get Ken. So Ken comes in and you said, Susan just got off the phone with Paul Anka. And he said he wanted someone with bigger balls than her to call us and tell us he can't do the show. And I looked at Ken and I said, no, actually, what he said was bigger balls. So Ken <laughs> said to me, so call him. Yes. <laughs> so I got so, on the phone and I called him. He answered the phone and I said, hi, this is Nigel Lithgow. 
I've got bigger f***ing balls than Susan Slamer. <laughs> and he said, do you want to keep them? <laughs> you know, Nige, I couldn't hear what he was saying, but I remember sitting across your desk while you were on the phone with him. I was white-faced. I was white-faced. Yeah, I was watching your face, but at one point, you you started banging your head on the desk. <laughs> um, he said, listen, I've worked really hard to do this for you, and I think it's only fair that you let me do it. And I said, can we change the day? I have absolutely no time on the um, finale because we've got so many kids on it now, but would you come and do it on the performance show? And he said, yes. And I think we all relaxed. And yeah. he was so great and it was so good. We invited him back and he did it the second year as well. But, but yeah. it, was, it, was, it was frightening. <laughs> the, the, I honestly thought, I'm talking to the mafia here. <laughs> well, I don't know if you remember what Ken said to us. What? What? Ken said, we're going to find a f***ing horse head in our bed tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the days, but I've got but to say, know, I've met Paul quite a lot after after that, and and we really get on very well. And it, uh, he actually turned out to be a, a really good guy. I don't know if you know this, but the day after our finale, he sent me a gift from Tiffany's. A horse's head? No, a lovely vase. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he is a he's a nice guy. He's a nice guy, um, but yeah. he was pretty pissed off at us. <laughs> yes, yes, I was fully aware of that. Thank you, Susan. <laughs> Uh, and uh, tell me, were, were you ever surprised when Simon Randy or Paula would criticize a song choice when you were sure that the contestant had really picked the right song? Yeah, there were some times I thought maybe they weren't hearing it the right way or they were, you know, I disagreed with them. But, um, you know, it's hard because I was just such a protector of those kids. I would be like, oh, what does he mean by but in actual fact, I think in, in a, he was right a lot of the times. They were right a lot of the times. For me, I just felt so protective of the kids that I didn't want anybody bashing them. Right. I didn't want anybody criticizing them. How did the record and publishing companies feel about the show at the end of the day? I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. I had Melissa Etheridge's manager come up to me at a function one time. And he said, I need to thank you. And I said, okay, for what? And he said, this American Idol uses all this great popular music. And he said, but when you struck a deal with all of us, we could tell that you cared as much about our songwriters and our artists as we did. It mattered to you that we were being represented properly, paid properly, and we are so grateful. Um, we love the show. We love the kids. And, you know, I think... Um, the, the record companies and the publishers, for the most part, most of them were incredibly excited about the show for the reason you kind of mentioned. We had these young, beautiful kids singing songs that the parents knew, right? So when our show came on, parents would be singing along to our young kids and their children who were enamored with our kids would look at them and say, Mommy, Daddy, how do you know those songs? <laughs> and the parents were like, finally, there's a show where I can sit with my children and they think I'm cool because I know the songs these kids are singing. And I think it brought families together. And the record companies and the publishers by the end of season one saw the benefit. They loved the show. They loved the format, but they also loved the fact that these songs were getting 
people all over the world were going, oh, my God, I'd forgotten about that song. Oh, yeah. my God, I'd forgotten about that artist. Yeah. So it was a win-win for everybody, Nige. So looking yeah. back on that first season of Idol, what were the absolute highlights for you? Honestly, every week we were live and standing on the side of the stage or standing outside in the audience or sitting next to you watching it, it was a high every week. It was like going to one of the best concerts you could ever go to every week because I was so excited at what we were doing and how these kids, these are kids with mostly no experience whatsoever and getting on stage and handling themselves like a damn pro singing the songs that they had only just probably heard a week prior. Not only were they singing a song they most likely had never heard before, but we were doing a cut down version, a minute 48. And so they weren't even singing the whole song. And then singing live in front of millions of people every week. I remember season one, I was sitting with Kelly and Tamira and Christine, and I think Ryan might've been there and Nikki. I think all the girls we were in and they were all disappointed at their rehearsal that day. They all felt like they had let themselves down. And I looked at them and I said, whoa, ladies. I said, come on. I said, you are going on national TV in front of millions of people, singing a song most likely you'd never heard before, getting an arrangement in two days, learning it and getting on stage live every week. Do you honestly think some big female star would do that with that little bit of rehearsal and a song she never knew. I said, cut yourself some slack. You guys are brilliant. It takes guts. It takes determination. I respect you all so much for doing this. Please don't beat yourself up. And I honestly felt that way. It's like watching these young kids get on stage and really kick ass week after week, you know, and I just, I was so proud, Nige. So proud to be a part of it. And the other highlight was at the end of the season when they, they did the tour and they started off in Anaheim. Um, Bird called me. I wasn't planning on going down because I had so much work to do finishing up the season. But Bird said, we've left a ticket for you. You must come see. You must come see what we did. And I remember sitting in that, that huge stadium and looking at all around at the different age groups, young kids, elderly, grandparents, parents, Everybody, all ages, all races, and our kids hit the stage and the audience erupted and I burst into tears. I was so, so proud of what we had done, so proud of what we what we had accomplished over that season. And I feel like American Idol was one of the best experiences of my life. I I look back on it with nothing but love and so I said that to Bird the other day. I'm so proud to have been a part of that for the first four seasons. I really am. I, I thought I think I think it was brilliant. And it changed when you came on board. <laughs> we needed you at the helm so badly to take charge. And you did. And once you came to America and you took over, it 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 fast forwarded fast and we got everything on track and produced, I think, some of the greatest shows ever. Well, I'm, I'm very, very proud too, um, to have led everybody during that time. Uh, but just hearing you, I mean, I, I have to agree with everything you've just said, and it's almost <laughs> brought a tear to my eye because I'm very proud of it too. Very, very proud. Uh, and I yeah. feel honored. You know, I, I was almost vampiric with taking the energy from these kids and their talent and sucking it in for myself sitting there. You know, I used to sit in the studio, as you know, while Ken was in the in the gallery. 
Yeah. Uh, and it was just wonderful, wonderful to do, which is why I'm doing these podcasts because yeah. it brings it all back to me. Uh, and I love yeah. it. Um, I'm going to talk to you again another day okay. about the finale uh, because that ah, was very okay. interesting. And I'll call <laughs> you another day about that. But for now, thank you so much. You, you, you are a wonderful woman. I love the excitement that you brought then. And you still have that excitement as you speak <laughs> about it now. So God bless you. Thank you very much, Susan. I love you, Nigel. Take care. Thank you, darling. Well, next week, we'll take a look at the top five, but that's another story. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to My Idle Memories on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, don't forget to rate us. Stay safe. Cue music. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.